Satish, what did you think about Ruben? First of all, we got our first confession, <laughs> which is incredible. If you don't know what that is, you got to listen to the episode to hear Ruben's confession around what keeps him up at night. But what was really interesting about this particular podcast for me, and you and I need to dive into this, are consultants, entrepreneurs. Wow, no, man, that's true me, dude. I'm a consultant. And I'm an entrepreneur. And yeah, I know. You know we, we have that, that. That was really something, as you said, I think we need to dive into that to understand that a little bit more. Here's my definition when he was talking about it that I think is a little different. As a consultant, you are not scaling your business. You yep. are scaling your services that you can do for the highest value per hour. But as an entrepreneur, I'm trying not to work in the business. I'm trying to tell people around me where my highest return is margins on other human capital or some sort of an IP. So while your marketing and sales needs are important, you can get one deal that's going to give you six months of consulting work where the entrepreneur has to continue to figure out how to fill the pipeline in because I'm living in margins. Does that make sense? It completely makes sense. And just to that point, so consultant, and I think that's something that I've touched on a number of times. A consultant is limited by the amount of time that they've got available. That's all you can sell. Yeah. So the difference for me is a entrepreneur is scaling. A consultant is more like a lifestyle business because you can only sell those hours that you physically have available to you. What's interesting is when you and I met, it was a consulting gig for me, but yeah. I was in parallel building Schoolio and consulting was a short-term funding thing for me. Whereas for you, consulting was what you did when we first met. Yeah. So it's really interesting. I love for us to continue to explore with other people, this definition of a consultant versus an entrepreneur, and maybe not just identify what's the difference between the two, but what makes us the same? You know, so anyhow, listen to the podcast, friends, and comment below and let us know if you're in the Parallel Entrepreneurship Club or are you a consultant who wants to be an entrepreneur or maybe an entrepreneur secretly want to be a consultant. Welcome to Year One, hosted by me, Dio Klopis, and my good friend, Satish Bala. On Year One, we speak to early stage founders, business owners, and entrepreneurs about the highs and lows of the early years, the challenges and rewards, and everything else in between. So, without any further ado, let's get into this week's conversation. Ruben, welcome to Year One. Thanks very much for giving us some time today. We're looking forward to this conversation with you. And I'm going to dive into the very first question, and that is, Give us a little bit of a backstory to Ruben. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, what your upbringing was like, and what has essentially brought you to the point where you are today. Thanks for having me on the podcast. My story starts, I guess, in Soviet Union, in Soviet Armenia. This is where I was born in 1980. I moved to Moscow when I was a kid, and I actually studied in Moscow, then my schooling and universities in Moscow. Then I came back to Armenia for a few years. I was dreaming about coming back to Armenia, developing R&D. I, I started coding at the age of eight. And from the age of probably 11 or 12, I knew that I was going to be into software. I started working as a professional programmer from the age of 15 and part-time. So I was doing that part-time during all my university years. Yes, I got back to Armenia, got married here. But in a few years, 
I thought that, okay, Armenia, maybe not, not the most interesting, not, I mean, not, not the greatest place for me at that moment. So we decided to, to choose Canada as a place to, to immigrate. So I moved to Canada about now it's, it, it's going to be over 15 years ago. So six, 16 or 17 years ago, I, I moved to Canada, settled down in Toronto. At that time, I was already working for software companies for over 10 years. Uh, mainly Silicon Valley based companies in the EDA space, electronic design automation. So we're doing like large scale software using C++ and things like that. And also I always kind of ran my little side web studio. I was doing lots of kind of websites and so I was into software and at the first part of my career, I was into software. Then I joined a small financial company, small brokerage in Canada. And I worked there for over 12 years. And in those 12 years, we took it from a small startup to being number one in Canada. It's a household name, Satish, I'm pretty sure request trade. And that's where, yeah, yeah. And that's where I initially started as a software person there, helping them build their trading platform. Kind of very quickly started getting my own teams, became like a manager, then a director there. And then basically I switched from a purely technical software career to more of a managerial people manager career there and uh, then i moved on to managing their analytics teams data teams and if you fast forward to 2020 when i left i had a like a fairly large team there doing anything and everything data related i was the head of data and analytics for over 10 years there that really formed my worldview in a sense because i'm practicing what is called a data-centric approach to business where you look at the information and the information life cycles first and only then you look at organizational structures, at technology. I'm, I'm actually currently producing a course called Data Centric Executive. That's about that. So that's about switching mindsets in, to information first worldview. Yeah. So that's, that's the story in 2020 when COVID started, I started doing consulting. I left Questrade, decided to do a thing on my own. And that's where the story of me as an entrepreneur <laughs> starts. A few experiences with startups, uh, throughout my career. Uh, I even had a startup, a website that I almost actually featured on the first place of Hacker News. And we got like tens of thousands of users the first day we were featured in New York times. They interviewed us, like wrote an article about us. It was kind of, but I was a 25 year old kid, not really knowing what he's doing <laughs> at the time. Right now I'm at a point where I run a consulting company, I have another technology startup. And a few other things in the making that I'm not prepared to talk about just yet. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I have a burning question, Dion, that I have to ask Ruben, because I Go feel ahead. like we, we share some similarities in our journey from, from technology to, to where we are today. Are consultants entrepreneurs? Some of them are, and some of them aren't. Do you consider it, because you said it both, you're like, I have a consulting yeah. practice, I'm a new entrepreneur. What is the difference in your head between a consultant who technically is yeah. running their own entity to an entrepreneur? Boom. It, yeah. It's a difference between a business person and a, a self-employed person. Basically when you're a solo consultant and you're only interested in selling your own hours, that's one mindset. When you are growing a company with a vision to help other companies do certain things, and you're trying to scale that, I think that's more of an entrepreneurial mindset. 
And initially mm. I started as a solo consultant. Initially, Infocratic was like a one-person show where I would help executives design their data strategy. I was doing some kind of data coaching for execs. Then some of my clients, they asked me to help them with the delivery of projects. And so Infocratic started growing more as a as an agency. So now we have over 30 contractors and now we, we work with multiple companies and we help them deliver all sorts of value on kind of the data and analytics side. But to me, the challenge right now is scaling that business. So to me, I'm trying to scale the marketing side, the sales side, and overall trying to think big about how this business can grow. And I've started a couple of other businesses along the way. That's a very interesting comment that well, you that made. The that you say, yeah. So you're saying that you're trying to scale this business, but you've also started things on the side as well. And there's this school of thought that what you need to do in order to make your business successful, you should be 100% committed to one thing. And you first yeah. need to make that work before you start exploring other opportunities. So I'm quite curious to understand that, do you think, so you, you're trying to scale this current business. Do you think by mm. focusing on other initiatives, you are not going to give this business the opportunity that it rightfully deserves because your attention is split across multiple areas? Yes. There is that aspect for sure. Let me tell you this. So my friend, he calls it like, parallel and entrepreneurs. Like there are serial entrepreneurs. <laughs> I'm a sort of what, a what parallel. What did you say? say parallel? You know how, so yeah, serial <laughs> entrepreneurs. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a parallel entrepreneur. And sometimes, sometimes it has to do with not being able to say no to other opportunities. For sure, it takes away from one business, one initiative. But consulting business is very... Uneven in the sense that sometimes you get a lot of work. Sometimes there's a ton of interest and kind of there's one client after another, and sometimes it dries up and it's really so to, to me, like I, I wasn't able to make it even just yet. So I do have a kind of steady pipeline of leads. I do have clients recommending other clients, but kind of it's, it's, it's sort of starting to pick up just now. So my first year into consultancy, I didn't know what, what the heck I was doing. I thought my kind of 500 person network on LinkedIn will be enough <laughs> to get clients, which quickly, quickly they dried up and I had to start investing into my brand, into growing the network, et cetera, et cetera. But it has, so it has to, to do with the diversification also, right? And also the, the other company, the technology company that I started, it's a knowledge graph company. So it's a technology platform that promotes the data centric thinking. So essentially it's a tool that enables the services that we provide with consulting. So it's like, Hey, uh, we're experts in all sorts of things, data and analytics, but if you want to do really high end stuff and kind of stuff that's on the edge, we also have a new sort of tool that can help you do that. So they, they kind of tie in together these two businesses. So yeah. It, it, so, it does take away from the focus, but they, they sort of go together also. Okay. I, I like the definition of a parallel entrepreneur. I think Dion, that's who I am now. I figured it out. I am a parallel <laughs> entrepreneur. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and, and Ruben, I'm, I'm using this now going forward today, but I'm curious. What, one area that we, we, we kind of overlap a little bit is in 2017, I sold my agency. And in 2018, I was headhunted for VP of marketing at Quest Trade. And <laughs> nice. I was really excited about it. Then I said, listen, I don't know if I'm going to be excited about 
lead gen and customer acquisition for a financial company. I just didn't feel excited about that work. So I turned it down. But, I, but my question to you is 12 years in a place is a long time, man. And yeah. it, and it cre creates some habits, some personalities, some comfort zones, yes. and, and yes. a view of life. How do you battle that version of you in today's version of you? I learned a lot at Quest Trade, and there was a lot of growth. So essentially, I went from being a software developer to being an executive level person. So that, that changes a lot. And because there was a lot of growth, small teams and bigger teams, kind of lots of people then kind of doing a lot of things on the high level, it does change your personality, but it's like you have this resource pool that you can tap into when you need to, right? There's also a lot of experience that doesn't have anything to do with Quest Trade, right? So, and I think the biggest experience, I, kind of the experience that, is, that was the most helpful was when I started running my own businesses and I started really like, I didn't know much about like about sales and marketing. I knew very little. I didn't know much about finance legal stuff, right? So when you get comfortable with all these areas, it opens a whole new set of doors for you, right? And you become confident. The, the hardest part is first few clients and first few clients that you don't get from your kind of existing network from your past life or current, but you were able to actually go solicit the client, offer value to them, prove to, prove to them that, hey, you are the right team to work with their issues. And then deliver on that and then get recommendations from them for multiple other companies. So that, that means the world to me. And that's, that's the hardest journey. So there were lots of mistakes on that journey, mostly in the sales and marketing side. Yeah. So there are pros and cons to that package for sure. Right. So I'm constantly asking myself, maybe did I have to leave like a few years earlier, but then I wouldn't have that experience. Right. So because it, it kind of, it kind of flattened out at the last few years at Quest Trade. And I was getting a bit, not, not comfortable, but I was, I, I was doing a lot of work that was not that satisfying to me. So I was managing a lot of day-to-day -day stuff. I was in a ton of meetings doing like nine, 10, 11 meetings per day, but the output of that and the satisfaction of that was not really what you do when you're, when you're trying to be creative on multiple fronts, right? So, I like and that. then, uh, yeah, now when you run your own show, you decide which channels you're going to be providing value through and which, like who's, who you're going to work with, who's your ideal customer. You are the person who basically when companies decide to work together, it's a mutual validation of chemistry, right? So. There's chemistry that there's kind of, it's almost like dating, right? So you meet, you understand that you need each other and then you engage like to do something together. So yeah, does that I mean, answer this, your that's question? That's a great way yeah. to position it. Yeah, that's a great way to position it, man. Cause at the end of the day, Dion and I, like we talk about all the time. I come from, uh, I come from a world where I had to start my own company in university. I studied computer science at Ryerson, but yeah. nobody would hire me. I didn't want the feeling of a boss. And so I started my own company and I learned on the job for the first 10 years, what am I even good at before I realized? So in my 25 year of self-employed entrepreneurship, 
the first 10 year was like light MBA. Yes. And then the next 15 was like the rocket ship, right? And so yeah. when I meet folks that are, that are like deeply rooted into a corporate culture, I look at where's the courage that forced the change. And sometimes COVID showed us, they get pushed out. So they have no choice. I'll sink or swim. Somebody pushed you off the edge and you got to finish yep. it out. Other folks hit a ceiling that they can no longer live under. They have to break out by any means. And so when we meet people, because the stereotypical idea of an entrepreneur, and I, as I'm saying this, I realize what I'm going to say doesn't make any sense because I was going to say the stereotypical hoodie wearing entrepreneur kid doesn't make sense, but I'm wearing a hoodie on this call. So it's kind of ironic <laughs> that I'm, I'm bringing that reference so, yeah, up. But you know sorry, what I mean? And so when we meet... <laughs> So we meet founders that are are now no longer the stereotypical version of a of a founder, and and there's no age limit anymore for being a founder, and you can transition into an entrepreneurship role at any point. I'm fascinated yeah. at the decision matrix that pushed people to that. Yes, and, and Dion is sort of going through his own journey, right, on on entrepreneurship. Well, and I don't think I can add any value to this. I've just been told that a consultant is not an entrepreneur, so I feel that's true. That I'm leaving at this point. <laughs> take the badge back. I take the badge back. Worry about that, Ruben. No, 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 no. It's absolutely fine, Ruben. I mean, what it does is it just uh, really yeah. means that I need to scale my consultancy into a proper business, which I'm okay <laughs> with as well, because that's you, part of the right. Well, yeah. well. you, you can blame it all on Robert Kaisaki and his. There you go. But I want to dive a little bit into data, if you don't mind, Ruben. So, but before I dive sure. into data, don't you just want to give us the 30 second overview of what your business actually does? So Infocratic is a consultancy that has a mission to help companies achieve more with data faster. And this has many yeah. facets to it, right? So we do the day-to-day -day data engineering stuff. We do analytics, AI, machine learning, data management. We have lots of expertise in all those areas, but I think the biggest value comes from really, really senior people who can tie it all into a coherent strategy. So they can come into a company, look there at their existing landscape, look at where they are, what's the kind of current low hanging fruit. So typically we break down a strategy into kind of short-term, mid-term and longer term, right? Something that you can do in three months, six, 12 months, and then two years. That's long-term now. Okay. Yeah. So, so let me dive a little bit into data. So I'm going to say something that you're probably not going to like, and I hope that you don't leave the call as a consequence of this, but <laughs> data for me is, it's not an exciting topic for me. And I'll tell you why. So let me qualify what I'm saying, right? The reason I find data, and maybe it's more that data scares me because you can go down into a rabbit hole, right? Yes. Because you can use data to validate any thought or preconceived idea that you've had. And, mm -hmm. and I've seen this. I actually used to work for a marketing agency where we used to use data all the time to report on the success of your marketing activities. And even when the data was mm -hmm. shit, we could turn it around in and, and position it in a favorable way. Right? Yeah. So my question to you is that if we look at the startup community, and if we look at the scope of data, right? If you had to tell me, Dion, 
for a startup, these are the data points that you need to focus on. And these are the most important data points. What would that actually be? Mm -hmm. So let me back up just a little bit. So data is a resource and it's the second most important economic resource in a company after people. This, this is my very, very firm belief, what I firmly believe in. in and so we're, we are in a place where there's a huge range of sophistication of how companies extract value from data, right? So there are companies that are pretty much data unaware, right? So they don't know what they can do with data and information and they, they barely get by. Whereas there are companies that are doing very sophisticated and very powerful things with data and they harness, they harness it as an economic resource. And it's, it's an economic resource with very interesting properties. Namely data is infinitely reusable, right? And this non-rival, non-rivalrous, meaning you can reuse it in parallel. You can reuse it for many, many things at once. So once you start, and there's a lot of data that comes at you from external world or that you can get deliberately from external world. And there's a lot of gen data that you generate as a business, as a result of your business activity. Going back to your question, what should start startups really focus on? For sure, they need to look at data as a, as, as an important economic resource, right? And they, they don't just need to be thinking, okay. And, but by default, every business is a data business these days, because everything is digital. And digital, digital, it runs on data, right? Everything is captured in computers. Everything is digitized. You barely get a business that kind of, that, that, that doesn't use that. And I guess it depends on the industry and on the sector where the startup is. Some startups are data, like their core offering is data or information related, or if it's technology startup, they're going to have like directly benefiting from this, but there are also many secondary and tertiary. Like there's lots of downstream value that you can extract from data. There are lots of data products that you can create and monetize them. You can create new lines of businesses. It's almost that you, you need to think about using data in, in terms of kind of offense and defense on the revenue side and cost side. Right? So it, there are always a ton of opportunities to both add new revenue streams or enhance existing revenue streams or lower your costs, optimize your costs uh, using data. And there's like, it's, it's an infinite game that you can play. So yeah, I guess what, when you, when you ask like, what are the data points that companies really need to focus on that depends on their business, that their industry, but the main piece of advice, I can say that focus on the data and information first and only then mm -hmm. focus on, focus on technology. So. Maybe we can talk about data-centric paradigm and what that means in this podcast and they'll kind of break it down a bit more. So, so one of the things that I think about is to add to Dion's thing, data has a bit of a bad rep because there's data and then there's knowledge from the data. And when yep. we look at corporations, they have the hierarchy. There's a data team, there's an analytics team, there's a management yep. team that creates dashboards out of it. There, so. When you look at an entrepreneur startup, like Schoolio, for example, our startup is yeah. 10, 15 people tops. And two years into it, now we have sales data, marketing data, digital behavior data, prospecting data, 
And we have overall this data, but as a small team, we're like, do we now focus on a, a consolidation project to hire somebody and put all this stuff together? Do we need to hire an expert, maybe like your company to, to develop the, it? so where does somebody start? Like, cause it feels so big yet we all know we need it and you got a brand new startup. So maybe it's a two part question. One, if somebody is thinking about data and understanding data in their company, what are their things they should think about to even know if they're ready to think about this? Maybe they're too small. Mm -hmm. And two, from your business, where do you step in to help? Um, okay, so the first question is uh, really depends on your current level of awareness and your current level of maturity of sophistication of what you're doing with data. Right? And yeah, this is something that we can help with as well, right? So we can come into an organization, we can look at your landscape in terms of people, data, and technology, and we can tell, well, this is how you rank up against like certain players in the industry, right? So we work with multiple industries. We can give you sort of a benchmark of maturity, right? Or show you, hey, what are, this is what others are doing. And you can essentially copy them or get to that level of maturity, right? So yeah, like I said, our biggest value prop is probably data strategy. So tying all of the pieces together. If you put it this way, right? So when I ran data at Questrade, I had a few large teams. We've changed the company org structure multiple times. We bought other companies. We integrated with dozens and dozens of vendors and other companies. We've changed technology landscape many, many times, and we changed kind of lots of tech, went in and out, right? And you start seeing how data lives its own life there, right? So it, you sort of develop an eye to classify data in a sort of way to, there are some economic principles that apply to some classes of data. And when those principles are broken, companies typically start losing money. And this is true regardless mm. of where it is regardless whether it's in Excel spreadsheets or if it's some kind of sophisticated AI-based SaaS system. Right. So the main thing is you started asking about, about like data and knowledge, also insert informa information there. So data by itself, it's nothing, right? So, okay, five, what is five? It's data, right? Information is data put in a context. So five billion revenue this year and knowledge, what, not, not only what that data means, but how it can help your business, how you can leverage that data. So, right. Mm. Like, this is, I, we have a 5 billion revenue and let's say I know how to make it into 8 billion. Right. So is right. this pyramid so of data? Are... Yeah. Yes. And the, yeah, the and biggest I like that step because yes. for, 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 sorry, for our listeners, what I, what I was trying to distill, which is what you hit is. How do you understand that, that ladder up, right? Like we have yeah. data, but if the data doesn't have any context, like yeah. you said, then it's just data. But even if you get context, you have to answer the, you have to ask yourself, what is the answer I'm looking for from this context? Yeah. And the meaning, which, which is a great way to, to, to introduce sort of where does data need to fit in? Cause if you're early stage startup and you're just getting yes. started. You might have a lot of data, but you have no context yet. You have not, you're not asking any questions. And, yes. and but on the flip side, do you suggest people from day one, even if they don't know what they're tracking, track everything? 
if they don't lose meaning. <laughs> so one of my mantras is preserve meaning above all. Right. And let me give you a bit of a background about that. Right. So the problem with 95% of organizations out there is that they're app-based or technology-based. They practice technology-based or application-based thinking, which is they use an app for everything. An average organization uses over a thousand apps today. This is official research. And all of these applications, they come with their own data models. And the data model is essentially the application's world. This is how I see the world as an application that's doing fraud and risk analysis, HR, marketing, sales pipeline, whatever, right? So every single tool that you have in your company, most of them, 99% of them, they come with a data model that will introduce, impose their worldview onto you. And essentially what you're trying to do, what organizations are trying to do, they're trying to fit in their business operating model into this mess of different tools. So between 50 and 70% of the IT budget these days is just integration. Is creating copies of data, it's creating data pipelines, moving data from one place to another place. It's a huge waste. It's what we call digital fat, right? So that, that's the biggest problem. The problem comes from essentially managing that meaning through all these different contexts, because you, one number can mean one thing in one context, it can mean another thing in another context, right? So we come across cases over and over again when companies have like 10, 20, 50 different places where they have customer information, right? Different, like various information about their customers and they're trying to somehow manipulate it, somehow manage it so that they can create a holistic view about customers. And your data about your customer today, it essentially defines your relationship with your customer. The better your data, the, the, the more you trust it, the more you can use it, the better service you are providing to your customers. This is where the disconnect comes from. And it, this is just a historical evolution. So historically we've evolved into this very chaotic, very complex, chaotic systems that are treating data and information as an afterthought. And the whole paradigm of data-centric thinking, data-centric approach is that you create your own model of the world. You create, you model your business in abstract terms. And then you tie it to your existing data landscape or you engineer the existing, you, you engineer the architecture of the firm so that it reflects that model. So in this case, you are imposing your worldview on your organization, both kind of technologically, work structure-wise and everything. Right now, historically, again, we have evolved to try and fit what we do between all these CRMs, ERPs, content management systems, financial software, et cetera, et cetera, right? And we're trying to make them all talk to one another, but they all talk a different language. So that's, that what becomes a very non-trivial problem to solve. And I'm just curious, I mean, once again, I mean, this conversation that we've just had now substantiates almost my point that data is complex, right? It is. And that, the that, reality that. is that startup there might be yeah. two founders and they just building a product and they want to go to market but data is the last thing on their mind but you've made the comment that you said data is your second most important resource of the people so yeah. given that i've just started my business given that 
data is complex and given how important data is in order to make informed decisions, what do I do? Mm -hmm. I don't have enough knowledge to interrogate my data. So what do I actually do? What, what advice um, would you give early stage founders? Well, first come talk to us, <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> Sales pitch 101, <laughs> Ruben. Plug, right? The number one thing is to realize that it is a very important economic asset. So for instance, if we talk about customer data, your relationship with your customer, again, is defined by your data. How well you know your customers, how well you know what they want. Are they happy? Are they, are they not happy? Not capturing that data and not managing it in a proper way is, will be a huge mistake for founders, right? So when you, when you ask about tracking everything and capturing everything, for sure, you need to capture the whole like sales pipeline. You need to capture how they use your product, product usage, and you don't do surveys these days. You just see how they use the product and uh, where they stumble, right? And you have to analyze that. that. If you're not, if you're not doing that, you're missing out on opportunities to provide value to your clients. If let's say you have one developer, a very, very basic example, very quick, often found in many, many startups, you have a developer that decides to keep things in one way in a database. So he codes how data like so he deals with meaning and he codes how certain things are being saved in a database. Then you lose that developer. Another developer comes and he says, okay, I'm going to do things differently. And he starts <laughs> recording things. His way, because like 99% of software developers, they don't care about data life cycles. They care about the immediate features of the product. They don't think that the data that they generate is going to be used. Lots of other downstream activities. Then you get, you end up in a situation then, okay, now you have to invest substantially more to be able to, be able to create a holistic view of customers. And in reality, the situation is often much, much worse. And typically when startups go through fundraising rounds, they start hiring lots of people. So their organization grows, lots of new people with new ideas and new ways of working with data come in. They start investing into systems and software. They start building more stuff there. They start buying more stuff and that complicates their technology landscape. And it's easy to lose the meaning of critical data points in that complexity journey. I love that, man. Dion, I want to ask a different question to Ruben, if it's okay. From what we've known of you in the last 30 minutes, Ruben, you love technology. You've been hustling since you're 14 or 15. Shout out to Pretty C++. Much. I did that too. You spent 12 years moving up the ladder in a corporate environment. We built your confidence as a leader, as a manager. You're now into startup world. And as we now learn, the parallel entrepreneur. <laughs> Let's do some real honest confessions, okay? What is the stuff that you're scared about? Because the things that, that you are not good at yet, the things that you, you worry about at night, that most entrepreneurs and consultants feel it, but they're afraid to say it. Is it sales? Is it marketing? Is it the fear that you're going to dry out of, of stuff? What, what is the one safe space confession that we help others feel okay about the problems they're going through. If you want me to ask as of today, as of now, it would be a very different answer than 
what it would be like. It would have been like a year and a half ago and the different Tell us answer, both. Like, Tell us both. Three, I want to know the transition. Ago, right? Like I said, when I was yeah, starting was this that? journey, I, I didn't know what the heck I was doing at all. I knew very little about sales and marketing and I had to educate myself. I hired marketing coaches, multiple marketing coaches. I've hired some people who taught me how to do sales properly. I've hired people, kind of fired people doing that work. I've learned a lot myself. I, I set up and redesigned pipelines a few times, right? So that's, that's a whole world that I knew not much about before I educated myself, right? So when I look back right now, I was like, you idiot, like, how could you start a business without like, like, like my, my going into consulting was just relying on my network. I knew a number of executives. I was well-connected. I still am well-connected in the Canadian financial scene, like a number of executives, directors that I can reach out to and just grab beers with them and say, Hey, you need help on this and this front. Right. But that was not enough. Right. So that dried up in the first year, first nine, nine, 10 months. And then I had to learn how to sell yourself and how to promote your business, how to go out there to the market and show what your value is. So that was kind of right now, when I look back, that's like really, really scary <laughs> trying without that. And after you, after you are in business for some time and you have like a steady flow of customers, then you don't have that fear anymore. So you, you don't have the fear that, okay, you're not able to get customers. And if anything, your name is getting more and more out there and cu existing customers bring in more customers and thing grows. The fear that I have, the biggest fear that I have right now is that I personally might not be able to deliver in the sense of kind of personal, not even productivity, how do I say it? It's not even like internal energy, right? But it's almost like that you would stretch yourself too thin that you're going to start losing, like Going dropping balls here and here, here and there, right? And it has to do with parallel entrepreneurship. So I'm trying to, that's bringing in focus, at least for like a temporal period. It's, it's one thing, but again, I run a consulting company. I have to juggle multiple clients. I have to juggle multiple contractors all the time. This, this is ongoing. This is my main income stream. When I digress into other ventures or doing things like online course, which I'm treating just as a marketing activity for the existing business, by the way, maybe some revenue stream. The fear is not being able to have that internal energy enough to kind of keep up with it, right? So, and it's, it's, it's almost like you're constantly building new levels of belief in yourself. Like right, right now, when I, I look at myself that. three, four years ago, I was like, who was this kid? <laughs> like, who didn't know like what the hell he was doing. Right. But if I. If I write a letter to myself in four or five years, I'm going to say like, Ruben, don't be afraid of anything. You can do much more. Believe in yourself. And basically keep the, keep the traje trajectory. I love that, Ruben. Other than that, not considering kind of the biggest mess that's happening in the world right now and the disruption that AI and chat GPT and things like that bring, which makes you, anybody using it a superhuman. Other yeah. than that, it's very hard to predict where things are going. I think there's going to be a lot of disruption in all, all areas of life. I think 
there's going to be a lot of black swan events, unpredictable events. Again, we'll start seeing them more and more. Mm-hmm. No, I appreciate you. Appreciate you yeah. stepping into the confession booth with us. It's something yeah. that we've been thinking about a lot on. And 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 some of these some of these moments, the minute you speak out loud, you go, "Ooh, you know what? I left home country, and I settled in a new place, and I found my first yeah. job, and I worked my way up, and then I got the first client when I was scared shitless, and." And, and, and then you go, ooh, if I did all of that, and at that moment, I was convinced, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, fuck am I afraid of? And so I, I love that you shared. Sorry, Dion, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no. I was just going to say, so you said when you look back, you had fears a few years ago, and that was around how do you market yourself and things like that. And you got marketing consultants on board, and you got mentors and things like that. With this new fear that you've got, what mm-hmm. strategies have you come up to make sure that you retain that energy? And the reason I'm asking that is because mm-hmm. we just spoke to a guest quite recently and she said as part of her business philosophy, right? She allocates 20% of her time to well-being. And, mm-hmm. and we thought that was really so important. So in the context of this new fear that you've currently got about having the energy to persevere and things like that, what are you doing? Yeah from your side to protect your well-being and also what are you doing to make sure that you can overcome these current fears that you have? I can 100% echo that. It's the priority. Number one is managing yourself at all times. And the more people depend on you in terms of contractors, customers, the more you feel that responsibility and the more you consciously invest into First and foremost, looking after yourself. I'm a generally fairly healthy person, but I do make sure that I, first of all, my biggest go-to thing is meditation. I try to do daily. Sometimes I fail. I wouldn't say skip. I I would say fail. But doing like 15, 20, 25 minutes meditation daily, probably I, I try to do it like at least four or five times a week. And that sorts of level sets all of your other activities. Yeah, getting regular exercise, moving a lot, eating healthy, getting enough sleep. That's all. So managing your, yourself physically, it's super important. Managing yourself mentally, making sure that you always have very positive outlook and very, it's that, that part grows, that, that part is actually easier because you, you become more and more confident. The more you, the more you are in business. The more clients you have, the more you speak to people, the more you get your name out there. That part is actually the easier part because you have so much track record, both in a corporate career, but now also as a person who has built his own business and he's now scaling it. So that part is easier, but yeah, you have to treat yourself well, basically. That's, that's the strategy. There's no other way around it as I see it. And I think that's a perfect note where we can end this podcast. But I do have one question for you, though, in terms of when I asked the question about where do early stage founders start, you turned around and said, they hire me. So my mm-hmm. question to you is, do you have a starter package for early stage founders? We don't have a package per se, but what it typically starts is a short discovery meeting. We just discuss what their current situation is, what their current landscape is. I typically offer 
like uh, to spend some time for free, again, depending on who, who the prospect is, but, um, typically we would, would invest some time into both understanding their situation and also validating them as a proper client for us. Okay. Um, so and then just, just come. Yeah. And if people want to find out more about you, where do they go? That would be Infocratic website or my LinkedIn. Excellent. Ruben, I really thank you for your time. It's been great chatting to you. Very insightful. And we wish you everything of the best. Year One is hosted by Dion Kloppers and Safish Bala and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It is engineered by BlueMex. For more Year One content subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit BlueMex.io to join us on Discord.